Yeah, hello everyone. Um, I, uh, it's a strange, strange uh, subject that I'm speaking on um, because uh, yeah, health, happiness and well-being I think is very much Robert. Uh, it's a bit of a hippie fest. Uh, feels like a bit of a loving as a theme. Um, so I was kind of surprised when he asked me to speak on conflict and when I saw that was my subject. Um, but the truth is, I think, you know, if, we're, if we are chasing happiness and well-being and harmony, um, we've got to be honest with something about what's happening right now. And it seems as if in the last year, there's been quite a big change in the world. I mean, just switch on your TV at night and you see it. And it seems as if happiness and harmony is furthest away from us. Um, this is Charlottesville. Uh, it's the other side of the Atlantic, and I think most of you have probably seen it in the news and have your views on it, but it doesn't seem as if it's only happening there. I mean, if you think three months ago here in Manchester, the terrible attack that happened, and shortly afterwards in London, uh, or you think just this week, the British soldiers who were members of an extreme right-wing group who were arrested on terrorism charges with similar views to this bunch. Or, uh, or this week, um, it's not just the extremists, uh, on either side. Something's changed in the middle as well. This week, uh, the president of America got rid of the right of dreamers to stay. And this week, we heard how we're going to get rid of foreigners. So we seem to have fallen out with each other. And if we're looking for happiness and harmony, uh, you know, the world seems to be in a very different place. So the challenge, I think, uh, is really, if we're, we're chasing that thing at the end, we've got to start a long way back. We've got to start a long way back and start looking at those problems that are coming forward and understanding what we can do as urban designers to address them. And I think there's an awful lot we can do. Uh, this is um, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Adrian Maslow, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it before. But for me, it's a really simple way of understanding how we can pursue happiness from <coughs> right at the bottom and how actually we can think about it as urban designers when we shape the city. It starts with this idea uh, that we need to address our physio physiological needs in the first instance. So it's things like shelter or running water or just those really basic things that you need to survive. Interestingly, it's a thing that still about a third of the world don't have. They're a long way from the happiness that sits at the top of the pyramid. Above that is safety. We need to feel safe wherever we are. In countries with civil war, that's an obvious thing. In families where there's issues at home, that's a consideration. In the kid growing up in an estate down the roads where there's a lot of crime, well, that's getting in the way of their happiness. And equally, I think as urban designers, when we think about arranging bus routes through a master plan to make sure that the, the, the mother who's coming home late at night from night school can get home safely, we're thinking about safety and we're planning around those things. We're beginning to build happiness right from the beginning because those starting points are important to get to the top. Love and belonging, it sounds quite strange, but it's about getting your basic needs met, feeling like you're part of something. And what strikes me is, um, well, you can kind of see, even though it goes up in the pyramid, if you get a kid who is feeling unsafe or hasn't been properly housed, the first thing they do is cling to someone. Their need to feel a part of something sort of overrides those other needs. It's a really important one. But when you saw those people marching with those flames in that picture earlier, 
they were also wanting to belong to something. And the only way they could feel like they could do that was to exclude others. So it seems to suggest that those people are suffering from the needs below not being fully met. Whether it's job security, whether it's the fact that they feel that their lives are going backwards, but it's causing them to behave in a particularly uncomfortable way, but it's also pulling at our society. Further up is esteem. That's when we become productive members of society. And I think that's, um, for most of us in the room who've had the opportunity to choose the jobs that we want to do, we're fortunate enough to be in that place. But it's only really when you get there that you can find happiness. That health and happiness comes from self-actualizing. So the journey to get there, when we see it as individuals, each of us, is a long way. And it starts a long way back. But every one of those phases, every one of those stages, is about building health and <coughs> happiness in society. So if I go back to that night in Charlottesville, and you see those people marching, and you see um, communities that somehow seem unable to get on with each other. As urban designers, when what we do is build strong communities, this is a real challenge. What would we do if we were the urban designers working in that small town? And it made me think of a project which I picked up a good few years back, and um, like half of my projects, and I'm sure half of yours, it remains slightly unbuilt. It, this one got caught out by the downturn. But it was a really interesting one, because it was over on the other side of the Irish Sea in Belfast. Uh, a couple of you recognize the city already. And um, this huge empty site that sat just off the city center, which is off to the left, which ordinarily uh, you would think is an ideal location. The city center just across the way, it looks well connected. It's got a southern facing riverfront. But actually, the reason why it hadn't been developed for all these years is that Belfast is a very complicated city. And you don't see these in the brochures. But right here in the United Kingdom, there's 36 kilometers of wall running through our cities, keeping people apart. You know, for people who spend our lives worrying about permeability and connection, it's quite a surprise to see that that's the way we've responded to the issues in the city. Um, and good walls don't really make good neighbors. Um, so this site has very particular conditions that were surrounding it. On the left-hand side is the city center of Belfast. And for those of you who've been there, um, or who've got friends who are Northern Irish, or some of you who uh, you can clearly tell from those accents earlier, uh, know the city well, the city center is largely neutral territory. Everyone gets on in the city centre, no one really challenges each other about who they are or where they come from. But beyond the city centre, when people go home at night, things start to change. And so the area shown over there off uh, in East Belfast, it's coloured in orange, uh, is where the nationalist community live. Um, people who would be primarily Protestant. Um, and in the short strand, just in front of it, uh, is a Republican community, which is primarily Catholic. And the yellow line, is one of those walls that separates the two sides, right there in the middle of one of our cities. And the site in front of it, well, that's an interesting space. That's become no man's land, or as they call it in Northern Ireland, an interface territory. It's the space between the communities that keeps them apart. <coughs> it's, um, it's neutral territory. No one goes there. Everyone walks around it. And so suddenly, this amazing site is just sitting in the city center, and it's empty. There it is, that's the site I was looking at. And it made me think back to where I grew up. Um, 
and I'm sure most of you can guess which side of the tracks my home was on, because all the people looking, living on this side were black, and the people on the other side were white, and the city was divided. And actually, when you go through South Africa, uh, you see it time and time again. And there's a really interesting device in keeping people apart. Um, you can see black communities sit on this side, white community on the other, railway line and the big busy road that keeps people apart. You don't put bridges and you don't put permeability in if you want to keep people separate. If you want to keep communities separate, that's the thing that you do. It's a very easy way of doing it. You don't have to waste money on all those walls that they've built in Belfast. Um, and, and what's really awful about it is when we build cities like that, we concretize those relationships. And that's what I think is, is so very frustrating. I, this was this weekend, I just Googled South Africa again, and it's quite an interesting thing to do. Just go town after town, city after city, and see the separation. And again, you can see the black communities down the bottom, and the white communities on the top, and the motorway separates <coughs> the two. Um, it's an interesting thing, but you'll probably find that there are many cities that we have right here where there's similar situations where communities that are poor and relatively deprived are separated from the wealthy side by infrastructure. But the idea, um, well, that's the concept, the, the, the planners in South Africa used to design our cities, the neutral city centre in the middle and then the separate areas separated by infrastructure and roads and waterways and all the rest of it. It's an interesting plan because, to me, it looks very much like Belfast. The neutral city centre, the rivers, and the roads that separate the two communities. So, yeah, for me, Belfast looked very much like where I grew up. Grew up. Communities that were not getting on with each other because they were kept apart from each other. The walls didn't make better neighbours at all. The walls concretised the relationships and kept people separate. Um, but of course, I don't come from there. I come from somewhere else. And uh, we spent a long time trying to understand how the people who lived around the site felt. Uh, and we commissioned social ethnographers to go and live with the community, both communities on either side, and to try and understand how they felt about the site and why they felt that way. And this is a picture which I found on Google, which is from uh, just off the short strand of a bus burning. And the sort of experiences that people would have had that shaped the way in which they felt about each other. These events were traumatic and they really affected people. When, they, when the social ethnographers spoke to people, they found that um, there were people who told stories of their grandparents going to the post office that exploded just before they got there. Or people who walked down the street and were attacked by thugs. And the mother told them not to walk on that side of the street, always stay on the other side of the street. And over time, these things built themselves into the way in which people behaved and the way in which they responded to the city. And actually, it played out in a really interesting way. This is the map that they came back and, and gave to me of the way in which the different communities then moved around the site. And you can see that the Catholic community followed the green lines. They walk around the short strand and they walk on the right-hand side of the Albert Bridge down the bottom. And the Protestant community always walk on the left they never walk on the same side. And once they cross the river and in the neutral territory of the city centre, they both actually head off in different directions and they cross paths. It's been the site of conflict before, uh, so people are very wary of crossing that bridge and that route in. But their responses to that site and that place are strongly shaped by the experiences of the past. And it's come to, um, there's symbolism and there's meaning in that space uh, that maybe is not immediately apparent to us, 
but which shapes people's behaviors and the way they respond to them. And it sort of takes me back to um, Charlottesville that night uh, and the symbolism and the meaning that is evident in this picture as well. I mean, I've never seen anyone from the Ku Klux Klan, but when someone's walking down the street carrying a flame like that at night, I know what they mean. And I think everyone does. And equally, there was the symbol of Robert E. Grant on the horse and how that had come to mean different things for different people. It's a very divisive thing. I mean, it's an interesting statue uh, uh, that went up probably 50, 60 years after the American Civil War had ended, at the time when segregation was beginning to be put in place, uh, and he became a, a new hero of the time. So this idea of communities being pulled apart and the, and the, the richness that people attach to symbolism uh, seems to be a consistent theme as well. And, in Belfast is no stranger to symbolism. Um, that bottom left picture, I think the first time I went there with someone who'd never been there before, and they said that they're having a party here today. And it's not a party. Those red and white mean that that's uh, a loyalist community, uh, just as much as the Republicans would paint their curbstones in green. So symbolism is a really important part. There's, a, there's an interesting thing, though, in these things, is that this doesn't happen everywhere in Belfast if you went there. It tends to happen in the deprived communities mostly, or at least relatively deprived communities. And it goes to that picture I had earlier, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're not getting those basic needs met, you're far more inclined to behave in a group mentality that excludes the other. So there are issues underneath that need to be addressed first if we're really going to be addressing these problems. But the, the symbolism continues today, and it made me think of the... Belfast City Hall, this big wedding cake of a building in the middle of the town. Um, and I said that the city centre was neutral. So when the, um, the council that, that won the local election decided to put the union flag in front, you can imagine the conflict and, that that caused and the problems. And I don't know if those of you watch the news or are kind of tired of hearing stories from coming out there, but it wasn't long ago that this was, uh, this was leading. I think it was only two summers ago that there was trouble in the city centre around this flag. But it's an interesting thing because there's an exact same wedding cake type building with palm trees on the other side of the world. It's an exact replica, in fact, that's Durban City Hall. Um, and just thinking about the one made me think about the other. And the flag that South Africa developed, in fact, it's very similar in concept to the Union flag about the different nations coming together captured in one flag. And the South African flag at the end of apartheid was the different nations coming together as a single flag. But what, was a, what it was different, I think, to the Union flag was that instead of seeing it as different countries joined together, who then never settle down and keep wanting to pull apart from each other, South Africa saw it as uh, Oops, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> South Africa uh, saw it as a rainbow nation. They saw it as a country made up of difference uh, and that people could come together. I'm going to speak very quickly now because I think we've got quite a far way to go. But just a little bit down from Durban, um, that Durban City Hall, um, is Phoenix. Uh, and I went to an architectural congress in South Africa about 12 years ago. And they took us out to Phoenix uh, to a site that had been the source of conflict um, in the Ananda riots. And these riots were, happened between two different communities in South Africa who were also separated by apartheid. There was the Asian community and the black community. And uh, the consequence of that was to leave this building that we went to go see destroyed, completely looted. 
And we walked around, and I thought that was the purpose. And when we walked around, they showed us there was something really interesting on the floor. There was a diamond out front. And that was a space where a man sat and came up with this idea of passive resistance. And that was the house before it was destroyed. Um, and the real irony is that house belonged to Gandhi. And it was the site uh, where he thought about things coming together. And so when that house was destroyed, it really shook the community on both sides up. And they decided they needed to find a way through and try and do something about it. And if you look at the plan of the city, you can see the Asian communities on this side and the black communities on the other. And the land in between had become no man's land, an interface area, just like the area in Belfast. And what was interesting for me was the solution they found was to reprogram that space, make it not no man's land, but make it positive space, give it a new meaning and a new purpose. And they built a football pitch there for both communities to come together. And actually, just at the foots of that house that was burned down, both sides started to build new relationships around the football pitch. It seems a nice way for communities to get to understand each other. I haven't been back, in the, but I've seen this picture. Um, Fortunately, Gandhi's house has been rebuilt in the same site and on the top of the hill overlooking the football pitch. But it took me back to the site in Belfast, the Sirocco site that stood there as an empty territory. And I thought, in the same way, we needed to reprogram that site to give it a new meaning. And so I masked it up. But I did it in a way that quite consciously shaped the urban form to bring the different communities together. And obviously to give them a, a reason to go somewhere, a new bridge across the river that would connect to the other side. Um, but I really needed people to walk on it, and I did a bit of modelling to understand how people move through the city centre now, and those are the existing bridges across the city centre. And I took a random starting point in someone's home on the other side, and as most of us do, we just take the shortest route home. So I mapped it and saw the way people moved. And the more I mapped it, I started to notice that people were actually avoiding the site. So those patterns that uh, people were behaving to were kind of entrenched in the urban form. This is the bridge then that connects across to the Sirocco site on the other side. And quite fortuitously, it connects with the main street that runs right through the city centre and past that city hall that we were just having a look at earlier. So I put that in the model, the new bridge, and took the new routes across it. And then the exact same starting and ending points and the shortest route home. And every time, or almost every time, that short route took people through the site. So it meant that we could begin, and if you'll excuse the clumsy Photoshop, to, um, to bring people together and get them walking down the streets, both communities, and then splitting off as they go home. The idea was really to reprogram that site and give it a new meaning and a place to bring people together. But still, I think there was one last thing uh, that I needed to think about um, and why that would all work. Um, and I think this picture says something as well, that man in the picture is not angry, he's frightened. He's frightened of others. Uh, and for me, one of the best things we can do as urban designers is help people to come to understand and see and live amongst other people. The walls, well, they just keep people apart. But, um, and this is, uh, this is something I've seen a little closer to my home in Brixton. Uh, and uh, an interesting square because there's a statue in it as well. Uh, that's a Tate statue in front of Tate Library. Um, who uh, Tate and Dar Sugar, or the Tate Gallery, who made his money of slave ownership, but uh, fortunately has left a legacy of a couple of libraries and art galleries. But that's never really been a problem. The real problem with this square was its antisocial environment. 
that actually you couldn't really see people when they, when they were in there. And those people who were in there were then able to intimidate others not to be around. And pretty soon there was a lot of drinking and drugs that was taking place in that space. And the square has been wonderfully redesigned and wonderfully redeveloped. It's open and it's friendly, but more importantly, it provides space for everyone to come and sit there in a way that feels safe and comfortable and understand and, and allows each of them to begin to develop an understanding of the other. It hasn't excluded the homeless and it hasn't included, excluded the people who are drinking. It's, everyone is there now and we can all see each other. And actually it becomes a wonderful foundation for bringing people together and rebuilding a, a sense of community. So right in the middle of the scheme which I propose for Sirocco is a new square where those roads meet. A square that hopefully provides the space where people will begin to come together again. So a bit of a wild journey, really, um, through the conflict uh, that is uh, really very much part of the world we're in now. But I think, I hope, tells a story of how cities give shape to our society in ways that sometimes we don't completely think about. Uh, but just as they can keep us apart, um, and just as they can carry those scars, uh, I really do believe that they can heal. Uh, and that in the same way as they're physically able to pull people apart and keep them separate, the way in which we shape our, our work can bring people together too.